Welcome to the Inspired to Be Authentic podcast. My name is Matt Lansadil. Inspired to Be Authentic is a podcast where we converse with people who are living their most authentic lives. We get real with our guests and talk openly about how they live with courage to be themselves. We explore barriers they have overcome to be more authentic and aligned to themselves and their purpose. Today's episode 20. We've reached the 20 episode mark um, and we have John Voltoro with us today. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me and congrats on the hitting the 20 mark. That's big time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's coming along. So today we are going to be breaking down um, a really cool topic. We're going to be talking about encouraging your authenticity in the workplace. Um, really excited about exploring this because I know for a lot of people, um, sometimes people feel like their creativity can be stifled. Their sense of who they are can be stifled in their work um, if they're working for somebody else. So We're going to talk to John and pick his brain today on how we can uh, break down some of this stuff and learn how to honor ourselves uh, in our workplace. Um, So I want to share a little bit about John so you guys get a sense of who he is. Um, John Voltoro is an executive coach and International Coaching Federation LA chapter president-elect. He served in executive management for 20 years, most recently as chief marketing officer and board member at startups and for mid-size to large private and publicly traded companies at IBM, Slack, Bertelsmann, Gunthe Ranker, Spark Networks, Havis, Front Door, and Tony Robbins. John helps leaders upskill, align vision, overcome obstacles, and hire, train, and retain talent. He is part of the LGBTQ community a DEI advocate, speaker, panelist, lecturer, podcaster, and soon-to-be author with an MBA and certifications in energy leadership and conscious business coach. I'm excited to break this all down. (laughs) Yeah, thank (laughs) you. You got got a lot going on and it's uh, really cool. I'm glad that you're able to come and, and we can talk about a lot of this stuff. So thank you. There's one thing I was reading your bio and there's, I, I want to start out with this because I think this is going to kind of paint the picture of how we connected. And I, I always, um, with people, it's always about alignment for me because it's like, I want to make sure that we're aligned and there's a reason why we're having the conversation. I kind of picked it out in your, in your, off your website. So I'm going to read it here and then I'll let you speak to it. So you say, I realized that I wasn't authentic and it was physically and emotionally hurting me. Although I had been achieving professional success within the company, it became at a, or it came at a considerable personal cost. It was then that I realized I needed to figure out a way to achieve success on my terms without altering my DNA. As I evolve personally, I evolve professionally all the way to the C-suite, board, sought after, advisor, and more. So Did I, I write that? Wow. You, <laughs> right, I know. It sounds so good. So I want to just get, I want, I want you to maybe talk about that piece of your origin story and how you went through that transformation of having this realization that you're being inauthentic was actually personally, um, like physically and emotionally hurting you. It's, it's kind of an interesting journey and it started, I'm a New Yorker, so I was born and raised in New York city. And so when, when people hear that, they probably have like this connotation of the type of person that New Yorkers are, I was that type of person that you think of. <laughs> and, you know, so that, what that means for me was that I was really direct. Um, I'm very transparent. I like to think I'm incredibly transparent, honest. And, you know, that works for you. And sometimes it doesn't work for you, especially if you don't have the tools to kind of manage the way you react and the, the language that you use with people. And when I got recruited to come to Los Angeles to help 
a company start a division. I was really excited because I kind of got tired of New York, even though I was raised there and my family was there. I just wanted to change. Yeah. And when I got here, though, I was faced with like this major cultural shift. And what what the difference was is that people in Los Angeles are a little bit different. You know, it's a happy, sunny place, and a lot of people don't speak directly, and you got to kind of like learn language all over again. Mm-hmm. And also, just kind of the work style was different. So I was, you know, an executive at a company, came into it, and I was being myself. And I soon realized that by a lot of nonverbal communication, you know, when I watch people react to me, that maybe I needed to be a be different, but I wasn't at that point. This is this is uh, like maybe 17 years ago. I wasn't at that point aware enough about how I could do that and still be authentic to who I am. Mm. So I, I hired a coach to help me, an executive coach. Actually, the company did because I was really having a cultural kind of. I was I felt like I was having a breakdown. Like I just was going through a lot of a lot of kind of emotional duress over who I was supposed to be. And I had never really felt that before. Yeah. And when I, I started working with this coach who is still a good friend of mine and is an amazing person, the recommendation I got from him was to conform to the image of the boss I had at the time. And the boss was nothing like me. So it was really hard for me to do that. I had to do things like change the way I wore my hair, change the type of clothes I wore buy a different type of car to drive into the parking lot that everybody can see every morning and show up at, you know, meetings in different ways. And over time I was able to do that, but I noticed while I was doing that, that I suddenly was getting sick a lot more, a lot more. In two months I lost 30 pounds and I'm somebody who just generally kind of is, is, you know, thin to start off with. So when I lost 30 pounds, I looked like I was very sick. Mm. And I I did not know what to do. Like everybody noticed it. Everybody started talking about it. They thought, you know, something must be really wrong with me. And there was, there was, I was out of alignment with my values and who I was. And that's when it really hit me that something needed to change. And that's what that passage that I wrote on my website was all about. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. Um, how did you walk, maybe walk us through how you went from this place of, of feeling like you weren't honoring who you were and then how that kind of started to shape into you starting to honor your authenticity and honor your truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's good. It's good that I hit that massive pain point because, you know, I, I, I don't talk about this a lot because a lot of people have, you know, mixed feelings about Tony Robbins, but, part of the reason why I moved from New York to Los Angeles was to help start that business at the company I was at. And he has this line where he says, unless you have massive pain, you don't make massive change. And that really resonated with me. It still does. I think a lot of people get pushed to a point and then suddenly they will make a big change because they know that if they don't, the cost is going to be just way too high. So for me, that cost was way too high. And I had a really honest conversation with the coach I had at the time. And I just, she saw what I was going through and, um, I changed. I, I just started to kind of say the world needed to work for me. I needed to align my values. I value being a direct and honest person, but because I value that and I want to show up that way, what version of that can I show up with at work? 
what version of that can I show up with after work with my friends and other people so that I could align my values, but try to have a version that felt great at work for people to receive me and for me to be myself. And when I started doing that one by one on all of the things that like even the way I dressed, like my fashion and my style, right? Like that was a big piece of it. When I figured out those pieces, suddenly I stopped getting sick as much. Like I, I was getting so sick that I would have to go to the doctor in the middle of the day and get like a vitamin B shot because my adrenals wow. were just draining because I was so, my body was in such stress. And I don't, I don't really talk about this a lot, but this I think is so important because when you talk about and you do throughout all the work that you do about being authentic, when you're really inauthentic to who you are, the psychological and physical toll can be massive, yeah. especially if you're kind of wired the way I was or, or yeah, and still can be sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is my journey. Exactly that <laughs> growing up a gay man, hiding who I was, I had every mask possible to, to hide who I was And my, my, my biggest mask was the mask of masculinity. And I made sure that no one ever saw the feminine aspects of me or the more sensitive aspects of me. And, um, it took a major toll on who I was. <clears throat> and for me, it manifested in my throat. That's funny how <laughs> that happened, right? As I was about to say that, <clears throat> but I got strep throat a lot because I wasn't speaking my truth. So mm. we start to manifest our inauthenticity in physical form. And mm. it shows up in these, these ways of illness and, and disease because our authenticity, a lot of it is energy. It's allowing this energy to move and be fluid and, um, and be expressed. And when we don't, it starts to become stagnant in our body. I, f I feel so, um, so how did you how did you start to how did you start to honor that? How did you start to connect to 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 that and allow it to to be aligned? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I had to really think about what I wanted to start first because I knew I had a lot of work to do mm -hmm. and I still had to maintain my job and you know pay my mortgage and do all the things that you need to do when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. So I, cho I chose my health. I needed to get my health back. You know, I, I didn't want to have those sleepless nights. I didn't want to have the headaches. I wanted to gain, you know, the weight that I lost. I wanted to gain it back. So I went to an integrative um, health specialist here in Santa Monica and started on Chinese medicine and acupuncture and started to feel my body respond to it. And when that started to feel good, I was able to start tackling other things like the things that were more physical manifestations of myself at work and the dealing with um, how I wanted to show up with my boss, how I wanted to show up with my team. And it's funny, I had this person who worked for me at the time and he would always say something like, I can never read you, you know? And I think going back to what you were just saying about the masks we put on. Mm. So also growing up, I grew up in, in, I was born and raised in Brooklyn at a time when I literally thought I was the only gay person in Brooklyn. And I needed to get out of Brooklyn, right? We all know that that is so not true. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, I thought it was. I was a kid. Didn't see anybody on the block I lived on. So yeah. I moved. I went to college, then moved into Manhattan. And, you know, surrounded by more gay people, it felt really comfortable. Then when I went to work, I was totally discriminated against at work. And all the different jobs I had, some of it was explicit and some of it was just kind of the basic things that people say, such as, oh, when you said that, you seemed really queenie. So when I would, you know, going, you know, fast forward back to that moment where 
this guy always said to me who worked for me, I can never read you. I realized like that was another manifestation of this mask that I put up and I needed to then go into that and understand like, what would it mean for me to show up as myself? What if someone called me Queenie? What if someone didn't invite me to, you know, the boys club, which we all know totally exists in corporate world, especially here in corporate America. And I had to, and I'm, I'm not even totally comfortable with this today still, quite frankly, but I had to become more comfortable with the fact that I might not be invited to the table all the time because I'm different. Yeah. And I got to a place of comfort with that. And like I said, I, it's, it's a moving target for me. I'm still working on it. But each thing that was important to me, I dealt with one by one through a combination of a coach, a therapist, and a health specialist. And it was almost like I had my personal board of advisors uh, in the different places in my life that I really needed help. And that started the journey. And this is, you know, this is going back maybe 13, 14, 15 years ago now. And it's still, it's still been a work in progress for me. But, you know, going through all the work that I've done and then ascending to become a chief marketing officer here in, you know, the United States with uh, public companies, private companies, you know, it made me feel like I got past the part where the gay boy grew into the gay man and he could be invited to the table. But you know what my secret was in doing that was I knew I needed to make myself valuable to them in a certain way. Mm. And this was part of like the other challenge I had. And that way was to make them look good. I was the guy behind the scenes. I was the guy in front of the camera or, or in front of the scenes making the CEO look good, making the team look good and totally becoming a, I would say a, um, like a beige version of myself, right? Like not a lot of flair, not a lot of range from highs to lows and kind of, again, conforming to that expectation, because once you kind of go from one level to the next level, there's a whole new set of, of pressures that you feel. Mm -hmm. So that started like the past, the past year of the journey that I went on the past, I would say five year journey that I've been on where now I had these different sets of challenges as an executive and as somebody who had kids, you know, because I also did that. Um, and go and going back to kind of put, you know, a ribbon on this, I realized, and I, I don't know if this was your experience, but hopefully some folks in your audience will relate to this, that I kept doing things that made me look heterosexual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can relate to that. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. Yeah. That, that was my next question, actually. So that's a really cool ribbon and a cool segue because my question for you, and it's a little bit of a vulnerable, vulnerable question to ask, but I feel like what are the aspects of you that you didn't want to be seen as? And then on the flip side of it, I'm curious, what are the aspects of you that you want to be seen as? What were you moving your way towards and what were you moving your way away from? Yeah, that is, ooh, that's a good <laughs> one. That's a good one. Um, so I will be really honest with you. I did not want people to see me be emotional. Okay. I equated being emotional with weakness. Hmm. And I think when I think about it, Matt, I think it's partly because I have always been like from a work perspective, like a worker, an employee working with white men of a certain background who 
when there are no other people around would say certain things. And it kind of stuck with me that in order to be sitting with those folks who I did admire, you know, and I still do because, you know, some people are just really brilliant. Um, they would say those things and it, I had to be careful not to be that because I was afraid if I was that I would get kicked out of the room. Mm. And when I did going back to your point, like when I did start moving away from the emotion thing and I started moving more towards just like total rational, logical, objective John, I really didn't feel like I was expressing my creativity. I really didn't feel like I was seeing the world in the beautiful rainbow colors it exists. And I, I felt like I felt like I was going to continuously try really hard to be part of a club I was never going to get admitted to. Mm-hmm. So that's when I knew I had to move away from those, you know, conforming to those rules that I didn't create. Do you equate being emotional with being sensitive? You know, so it's a good question. I think when I think of emotion, being emotional, I think of, you know, how people say like we, we act within a band or a range, right? Like in the middle part of that range is kind of like the, our, our stasis or whatever that is. Um, I always felt like being emotional was when those big peaks and spikes would occur that go outside of my normal range. Yeah. And the, I don't know if it was so much it was sensitive, but it was the kind of like the baggage that's associated with people who are considered, considered emotional, such mm-hmm. as they're not <clears throat> logical. You don't know what to expect of them. You don't know what version, you know, they'll be when they come into a room and they're not in control. And that's not something that in, you know, the world that I have been in that men generally portrayed or that they valued. Cause when you did see those types of folks, they were uh, very few of them and usually at the very pinnacle of a company and people would say, well, we suffer that because of the genius. So if I didn't have the genius, uh, why would people want to suffer me? And I would be cast aside. Mm. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think mine manifested in the, in the form of sensitivity. I'm very, very sensitive. And um, it's, it's, it's my, my greatest weakness and it's all my greatest strength all in the same it's it's very dichotomous for me because um my sensitivity is allow is what allows me to connect with other people so deeply but it also it allows me to feel hurt and pain so deeply right so it's like this double-edged sword and but what i've noticed in in with men and a lot of the work that i do with men is around shame and a lot of the shame that comes up for men and i i see this even more so with heterosexual men is their um a fear of being sensitive and vulnerable and what I've noticed as well is my sensitivity gives them permission to, to experience their sensitivity. And I think for men, that is their greatest shadow. And I think men, a lot of men, that is their greatest teaching and, and learning that they're going to go through in their life is learning how to embrace their sensitivity because we so are ingrained and conditioned in our culture to see sensitivity as a weakness. And when we, but within our sensitivity is our authenticity. It is our alignment. It is connecting with others deeply. There's so much value um, in that aspect of being sensitive. So that's kind of how it's manifested for me um, around being sensitive. And I'm wondering for you, like when you started to live authentically and be aligned to this more um, emotional or, or, 
open version of yourself, vulnerable version of yourself, did it influence how other people around you, did it give them permission to be able to step into that within themselves? Your, your definition of sensitivity really resonates with me. And when I think about how you just described heterosexual men and just people in general relating to you, that's, that's also the connective tissue between me and other folks. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think if you were to know my friends and my colleagues and my neighbors, they would say that I'm sensitive and I'm pretty attuned to people's, you know, internal struggles yeah. that kind of ma- manifest themselves. So yeah, I would say that 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 is the way that people relate to me. That's the way I relate to people. I feel safer. I have a higher level of psychological safety when I feel that people are comfortable sharing their vulnerability, and I've created that safe space for them. So I, I totally get what you're saying, and it really resonates. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm, I've made a commitment to myself and I would say I, st- I started making this commitment to myself probably about five years ago that I'm always going to be the person that'll take my mask off first because it brings me so much joy when somebody sees me do that and I energetically feel their wall go down and then they take theirs off. So I, I want to be the person to always give people permission to be authentic and be true to who they are in my presence. And, um, Ever since I started living this way, it's, um, it's gotten easier <laughs> and I still find, and actually in groups of heterosexual men is where I find it to be still a challenge for me if I'm in, and it's very macho energy. And then I'm to be, I'll still do it. I'll still be the first person to talk about me, be my sensitivities and, and stuff like that. But it's when I, I feel that, Oh, like that wash over of shame sometimes where you have to breathe through it and just be like, no, I'm choosing courage over com- over comfort in this moment. And I'm going to allow myself to be seen regardless of what the outcome is. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that I experience discrimination when I do that because it's like people almost appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So um, I've never worked in corporate anything. <laughs> so I'm not, <laughs> I, but my, my idea of, of corporate, the corporate world is, I have two aspects of it. One is, is um, hustle for your worth. Everything is about hustling for your worth. And the other aspect is, um, like you said, conformity. Mm-hmm. What's your experience been around those two? You touched a little bit on it already, but I'm curious to dig mm-hmm. into it a little bit further. I, I think that when people think of corporate America, I think you're spot on. There's a piece of it that is definitely conformity. And I also think that we have to be just really aware of the fact that there are companies that are old school and there are companies that are more progressive and the companies that are progressive, they're, they're making new mistakes and that's really good because they're trying to figure things out. And that's really from a coaching perspective too. When I work with those types of companies, I see them trying, I see their leadership really trying to, to make those changes. What are they they doing specifically? Just curious. They're starting off by thinking, what is the actual culture we want to have? they're asking the question of their leadership. Yeah. Okay. And I think it starts right there. You know, sometimes I work with companies that are both very early stage and then all, you know, companies that are enterprise and the companies that are early stage, obviously they have a blank slate and it's easier for them to say, this is what we want to be. But going back to the point about authenticity, if the leader of that company, if the founder of that company doesn't truly embrace what they're building, doesn't truly believe in it, it's not going to work because people today are just so much more aware of what's real and what's not real. And that's probably a big part of the culture we have, but social media plays a big piece in that too. So when I look at, you know, 
the world of conformity, I see that there is a piece where people think they have to act in order to achieve a certain goal, they have to act a certain way in order, in order to achieve a certain goal. And we often say, well, where's the evidence of that? Like, I'll ask, you know, a lot of clients and coaching sessions, like what evidence exists that you have to do it exactly the same way? There might be certain pieces of it you need to do very similar, but can you show up differently? And what would it be like if you did? Mm-hmm. Because if you have a goal that's evolving, let's work on that. But then the older folks, the older you know, the older companies, people more ingrained in kind of their belief, they have that fear of loss because change is very scary. And change is happening so fast, especially with COVID. Things are just changing rapidly. Yeah. So the question becomes, if I change, what am I losing? And right now, with the work that we're doing with a lot of folks, the piece, the piece of it that they lo- they're losing could be their livelihood. It could be their sense of who they are. And helping people to understand like that there's an evolution occurring that helps you to get the best out of the people you work with by you showing up in all of the, the more beautiful kind of versions of yourself um, is work. It's step-by-step. Step. It's like tiny little steps that we take, but it, it gets people to the point. It attracts people who are really great and diverse and hopefully retains them. And that's, you know, when you, you, your question about why, what are we doing? What does it look like? For certain people, it's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. It's it's good to be authentic because it increases the bottom line. It's good to be diverse because it increases the bottom line. For other people, they live and breathe it. There's no question that it has to be authentic, no question that it has to be diverse. So depending on who you're working with, it just depends on how you approach it. But the goal really is to try to move us consciously toward that place. Yeah. And I, and I think it's it's looking at, you know, the more we know our own authenticity and, and our own alignment, we're going to, we're going to connect into things that are going to be aligned to us. Because I, I think about like being in an organization where um, you're not aligned to what their culture, the culture they're trying to create, and you're constantly swimming upstream against yourself. Um, it, it would be exhausting. You know what I mean? In, in your experience working with organizations, do you see organizations using like covert shame? to keep people conform to their culture, like asking people to, and maybe shame is a bit of a a strong word, but it's, it's like conformity, I think would be the best word, you know, asking people to dress a certain way, asking people to look a certain way, asking people to represent themselves in meetings a certain way. Like how much of that is um, helpful versus harmful when it comes to you have organizational authenticity, but you also have individual authenticity, right? The mm-hmm. dif- discrepancy between the two and how they can really coexist to, to make sure that the organization feels fulfilled, but the people, but essentially the organization is made up of all these individual authentic people, right? Right, right. I think that's where a lot of tension occurs, that, that exact intersection where your individuality might not conform to the norms of the organization. And while it's changing, it's definitely changing. You know, American corporate culture is changing. The, it's still slow. And it's also different depending on where you live in the United States. So, you know, here I am in Los Angeles. I don't think I see anybody wearing a suit ever. But when I go back to New York, where I'm from, no matter where you are, even though it's 2020, I haven't been actually back there in 2020, but in 2019, Uh, People were wearing suits, maybe not with a tie as much anymore. So it's, you know, progress happens. You know, part of part of what you're talking about is really interesting, because when I'm talking to people who are looking for companies to work at, 
we often talk about what are the norms, what are the what are the values of that company, and what are your values. So, for example, if you do value openness and inclusivity and transparency, there are markers that you can look at with companies that are in existence if you're going to join them to make sure that you do have a values alignment. And that is an incredibly important place to go because cult company norms are what they are. And they do evolve and they do shift. And some people can come in and help to be part of that change. But I do think that if a, comp if a person who's just really incredibly creative goes into a company that is pretty rigid, there's going to be tension. Yeah. So unless that person's going in there to be a change maker, it's going to produce tension because they have to be invited to that role. So often we're not invited to roles that we think that we're going to have. And it causes that tension that produces discomfort and then people want to leave. Those people don't stay at companies very long and they look for other companies that they that they'll feel more welcome in. And I try to help people, I always help people try to understand what their values are when they look at other companies that they're working in, or when I mostly work with people who are actually in companies already, who are having the values misalignment with their company and how to try to figure out ways for them to, again, like I said, show up as a the version of themselves they feel most comfortable. And if that doesn't work, then to move to a place that does, if, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I wanted to title this encouraging your authenticity in the workplace because it really takes courage. And if, if you're in a, if you're in a environment that isn't allowing you to show up in the form that you need to show up to feel fulfilled, then perhaps you need to move on and find something that will make you feel fulfilled. So from your own story and even just maybe even from your coaching, working with people, how do you help people move towards finding that for themselves? Because some, sometimes people, they're not quite sure and they're, they're, they allow that they, they, they are conforming. So mm -hmm. when we've conformed for so many years and we're not sure how to align or how to be authentic to ourselves, how do we begin to do that? Yeah, we, we have a tool that we use as coaches. It's, it's called, it's probably called a bunch of different things to different people, but essentially it's a values assessment. And if you're imagining, you know, if you, you and your audience can imagine like one column is a big long list of things you value and you get, you give it a scale rating, like one to five with five being super important. The next column is actually how much energy you're spending mm, on okay. that value. And when people, when clients and people, when I'm talking to people in general, come to me and we talk about how do we align this, we often talk about, well, how much do they value it and how much energy are they spending on it? And I'll tell you, what's really interesting is that we often find, and this is very common, people don't spend a lot of energy on the things they value a lot. They're spending a tremendous amount of energy on the things they don't value so much. And guess what? Because other people might value it. Mm. And when that happens, right? Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's going to hit home for a lot of people listening to this. I have a feeling about that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so here, like, I'd love to be able to help folks who are listening because when that happens, you have to then think, okay, if, if say, for example, um, they value writing a report a certain way every single way, but you know that there's a different way to do it that could produce a better result and maybe even be more fun for you to do. Yeah. Like, is there a way to close that gap? Do they really want you to do that? You know, if you're spending a lot of energy trying to close that gap, but you're not going to get anywhere, you're going to feel so much tension. You're going to feel so much anxiety. You're going to go home and you're going to be just thinking about it. And you're going to wake up and dread going to work the next day. Yeah. So 
that's not what anybody wants for themselves. It's definitely not what I want for anybody. So what we try to do is have people refocus their energy on the things they really enjoy doing and make sure they spend more energy on the things they value. And what happens is over time, when you start doing that with people, and this is the reason why it's so important to do it early on, is that really does help you make those small changes that over a period of time produce an amazingly tremendous outcome for you. Because now you're starting to live closely in alignment with your values. But it doesn't happen overnight, right? It's happening one little step at a time. And coaching is all about the gap. So you start off on day one with here's your current state. And then in a year, you want to be here. Coaches who are really good at their jobs will work with the, you know their clients to create those steps and help those folks get to them. And that is really powerful. That's what creates all these amazing shifts. Because if you value openness and transparency and love and inclusivity, and you weren't spending any energy on it, but now you are, you're going to feel more fulfilled. It's just happens. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think I want to take it a step further and talk about what is motivating people to choose certain positions or roles or, 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 or whatnot. And in your work, are you helping people undo those motivations or change those motivations? So they are allowed to, so they're, so it enables them to align to their, their true sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So um, I, I'm, I've been playing with writing a book and I've been, uh, there's a chapter I wrote. I wrote one chapter uh, a while ago that I can't wait to get out there because it's loosely called stop doing things you don't enjoy doing, but you're mm. really good at. And often, okay. do, so often people tell us we're really good at something that we don't enjoy doing, mm-hmm. but they're going to pay us well for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I ended up being a chief marketing officer. <laughs> Yeah. And that's and, what I was getting at. It was too, is, is people, money is a big motivator for people, yeah. right? Money, status, power, ego, all these things. So, and then what I'm curious is how do you help people undo that? Cause that's, that's only going to fulfill you for so long. And then when you, when you're actually f- hit that fork in the road where it's like, okay, it's time to really align to what I want, my passions, my purpose, it, it, we have to unlearn these mm-hmm. things that motivate us, they're ego-driven motivators, and we need to learn how to motivate ourselves through our purpose and our passions and our heart. Yeah, very true. So when that occurs, right? So I'll, I'll give you my personal example to give you a real example mm-hmm. that happened to me, you know, a few years ago, uh, four years ago when I decided I didn't want to be a chief marketing officer anymore. I started hearing other things coming out of people's mouths that I never heard before. And I heard things like, you're such a great coach. You're really good at creating teams and leading people. And I've always heard those things, but I don't think I was really ready to hear them, like really understand what that meant Mm -hmm. up until I made a choice that this wasn't the path for me anymore. And what occurred for me was that line somebody said, listen to what people say you're really good at and see if it's something you enjoy doing. And In all of the things I did as a chief marketing officer, there were a lot of things I actually did love doing. And I extracted those to see what type of job I could have if I extracted just the things that I loved from being a a CMO and then create another job, another role for me. And what I discovered was I really wanted to be a coach. I had been, you know, in organizational design and behavior before and sociology and I 
took a lot of psych classes. And so, you know, human psychology has always been a big piece of my future, my, my past, because yeah. I knew I wanted it to be part of my future. So I, I became a coach. And I think when we, when I talk to a lot of folks who are in the same position of, I want to try to figure out what my next move is, we extract all of the pieces of their roles that they love. And then we look at what types of jobs in the types of industries exist out there at the types of companies they would feel really aligned with. And I will tell you, especially now with the economy the way it is, where more and more people can work almost anywhere, the number of companies that are doing something that you really want to do is probably never been higher. And you probably have a shot that you never thought existed before. You probably have that shot today. And that's a lot of when I'm working with folks, we talk about that piece. I like that. And, And a lot of it is energetic alignment too. Right. Because if you're if you're in an energetic resonance with with your purpose and and your authenticity and you go into an interview and that that specific thing that you're trying to help people align to as a coach, they're going to those people are going to pick up on it. So we're we're constantly uh, exchanging energies as human beings. And when we're aligned, we're going to attract the people that are aligned to the energy that we're resonating in. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, like like you, I. You know, you you have been doing a lot of energy work with people. I am an energy leadership coach, and that was part of my training when I went to to school to become a coach. And for me, what that means is I help people move from kind of victim mentali- mentality all the way up to kind of the the best version of themselves. And you know, the way that we discuss this is that we just move through different layers. And the person, you know, as we evolve, the person that we are is just basically picking and choosing consciously almost mm-hmm. from like what energy we need in this moment to show up in the way we want to produce that result. And, you know, we talk a lot about the words we use, you know, empowered words versus victim type of words. And to your point, when I'm listening with people, it's not uncommon for me to point out, okay, that might be a victim mindset that is holding you back from achieving what you really desire. Let's look at that and let's get around those obstacles and let's create new words, new empowered words. So you can start showing up the way you want to show up. And it's amazing. I I really, you know, we're on zoom all the time, right? So I'm like looking at people's faces and their eyes and I can see their eyes are welling up because they just, they felt it and they, they want to make that change. And it's exciting. Yeah, I really like that. And and what it brings up for me is I, I just released a video, I think it was last week, and um, it was around self-limiting beliefs. And victim mentality really plays into that a lot. And I think what I what I've been doing, something really cool and exercise I've been doing is I've been playing with my what ifs. And mm-hmm. some, you know, we we have a lot of um unconscious what ifs that just they're they're automatic tapes that play and we're not even aware of them but they're always what ifs around limitation right what if i put myself out there and i get hurt what if i um go to this event and and no one wants to talk to me or you know we we play these tapes out and we use our imagination to create limits in our in our lives and i think what i've been really focusing on is how we can use our what ifs to create possibility and so each night before I go to bed, I lay there and I play with the what if game with myself and I come up with these, anything, right? What if I put myself out there and I meet the love of my life or what if, and I, and I, and, and it's really cool for me because it's such a great way to go off into dreamland with, with possibility being at the forefront mm-hmm. of your consciousness. And um, so, yeah, it's been really, really cool doing that. I love that. I love that. And while you were saying that, it 
popped into my head. So I have I have kids and they're girls, and you know I'm really conscious of the fact that we're two dads raising two girls, and yeah. you know I want them to be the the strongest, most empowered girls they can possibly be. And the what if and the imagine words are just so incredible. Imagine yeah. if I showed up this way, what could happen? Type stuff is just so powerful because it really opens your world. And where do we stifle that along the way? You, you talk to kids and they're so imaginative and they're, they, th- the sky really is the limit. But then suddenly as, as adults, we become domesticated and we start putting caps on possibility, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it, I, I think personally, it's, we, we do it to preserve ourselves from disappointment. So if we can develop a tolerance to disappointment, think about what that could do for us. It could really open up a lot of uh, opportunity for us to allow things in because when we put a cap on things. We're not just putting a cap on disappointment. We're putting a cap on opportunity as well. Right. So very much so. And I think that's, I think you hit it with that. We are set up as a culture to feel like if something goes wrong, it means something about us, Mm -hmm. but it just means we just learn something so that we can do the next thing. And we forget about that part. And it holds us back because, you know, the culture is such that if you do fail. Failure is bad. Actually, no, failure is awesome mm-hmm. because it's a lesson to get you closer to whatever it is that you do want. Yeah. So it's, it's, but it's hard to switch that. And like you said, I'll tell you for me with my kids third, in third grade, I feel like it started in kindergarten. I started getting messages from the outside world and yeah. I noticed it. And because I'm a coach, I pay close attention to the words that people use around people mm-hmm. and the energy they have, like we were talking about. And I noticed that they were getting these really traditional viewpoints shared with them. And I actually had conversations with the teachers about it because I wanted to make sure they understood. Like I think of my kids as having every possibility. Yeah. And we live in a really beautiful place with beautiful school system. And even so it happens no no matter where you are. So imagine folks who are not conscious of it, the the kind of like the pressure, the downward pressure we put on people with amazing possibility in marginalized communities must be tremendous. Yeah. I'm curious, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm curious about um, what it's been like for you to raise um, two girls in a, in a gay relationship. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, for, first of all, it's like the most amazing thing. You know, my husband and I wanted to have kids. So like that was a given for us. And the, I do think that going back to the energy thing, when you, when you put the energy out there, the world starts to organize itself around you. So when we made the, the decision that it was the time for us to do it, a lot of the things fell into place because we had been putting the energy out there. <clears throat> that said, the, um, the world doesn't really understand your family a lot of the times. You know, so you get, I was just telling a couple of neighbors a few days ago, you, we walk into restaurants you know, in very liberal cities and people still look at us. You know, they're, defi- they're trying to figure out who we are so they can kind of put us into a nice little box in their mental model, right? And so we feel that, and my kids notice it now that they're older. They're starting to ask questions about it. Yeah. And the, the challenge really is a couple, it's, it's kind of dual-fold. One is the importance of family is unquestionable. You know, like, and every version of family, you could be single and that you're your family, right? But the version of the family I have, two dads, two kids, is important to us. We want it to be respected and important to others. So there's people who like that, and there are people who don't. And we can tell the people who don't, yeah, you know, of that has, that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty overt. Sometimes I, I tell the story too. We were at a restaurant once up in the mountains and 
one of my kids was having a big fit over spilled apple juice, really huge fit. <laughs> you know, we, we feel the pressure and the eyes are on us. We're the only gay family there. And I'm, I'm just imagining like, oh, look at those gay guys. They can't handle their kids. Like that's the voice that's in my head. Like, yeah. see, gay people shouldn't have kids because if their kids spill out apple juice, they're going to go crazy. Yeah. And this, this couple, this older couple came up to us, um, heterosexual couple and said, just want to let you know you're doing a great job. Aww. And there's, so there are a ton of moments like that too. Yeah. It, it's, it's challenging. It's tough. You know, you have to tell your kids things that other people don't have to tell their kids, such as you have a two daddy family and this is how you make babies when you have a two daddy family. Uh, I don't yeah. think those conversations are happening, you know, at age four in, yeah. in heterosexual families. Yeah. It's a whole different set of challenges. And, um, but I can tell that it lights you up. Right. And that's what, that's what life is about. It's about making choices, um, that bring us more love and closer to, to love. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm really blessed. Yeah. I can see that. Um, so there was something that came up before, before I hopped on to that, (laughs) my ADHD (laughs) takes me everywhere. Um, So actually I'll share, I'll share this because I don't think I've actually shared this in my podcast yet, but um, how I came up with inspired to be authentic was I was reading a book and the question was posed to me. um, What do you want people to feel in your presence? And I was like, wow, it was that moment where I read it over 10 times in the book. It just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I'm like inspired. And I was like, okay, but that doesn't feel complete yet. And then I was like, I want people to feel like they can just be who they are around me and just be open. And I've always been told that, right? I just feel so safe with you. People always tell me that, that they can tell me anything. So I was like, and then it hit me, inspired to be authentic. That's what I want people to feel in my presence. And um, so then I was like, boom, right there, changed my brand, changed my Instagram, everything. I was like, and then I started this. This was about five months ago that this all took place. And then I started the podcast. So I want to, I want to pose that question to you. What do you want people to feel in your presence? By the way, so you're, 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 I discovered you through Instagram because that's what resonated with me. So I want to let you know that. Cool. That, that really did. And so I appreciate that about you. Thank you. While you were saying it, the word safety came up and then you, and then you, funny enough, you said, but when you said inspired, it didn't feel complete. And I, I feel like what I want people to feel is safe. Um, but now I'm thinking like I wanted to have another piece of it too, but I do feel, I grew up not feeling safe. I want people to feel safe. Mm. And I feel that's really important to me. I don't know what's next yet, but I do know that I work really hard to help people to feel safe around me because I think when they do, they just open up, like you said before, they become more vulnerable and they can show up in a way that opens them up to possibilities. And I, I, I love that because for me, Inspired had a period after it for 15 years. I did addiction counseling. I did fitness and nutrition. It was always about, yeah, inspire and motivate. But the authentic part hadn't been added on yet because I hadn't done that work myself. And a lot of the work that brought me to this was finding safety within myself around being gay and, and sharing that with the world and how I went through this transformation. And um, so I really do think that when it comes to finding our, our purpose and our passion, it's okay to just have the, the peace and live from that peace and then add to it. Right. And we're constantly adding on to the, the, the taglines of, of our purpose and our, and our passion and what makes us tick. So cool. I think that is really cool. Yeah. Um, so you have, um, 
a coaching circle that you're doing. I want to uh, learn a little bit about that. It's, it's predominantly, it's for LGBTQ people, correct? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. about a year ago, we started um, a colleague of, uh, of mine and I met, actually, we met at a conference in person and decided we wanted to start uh, coaching circles. Our first one was coaching circles for gay men who are leaders. Yeah. And we started with that late last year. And we have cohorts that start every month. And what's really cool about these is that they're focused. And now, you know, since then, we've, by the way, we've opened it up. So it's the whole LGBTQ plus okay. uh, population. And we do coaching circles where a group of seven to 10 people get together. They have some sort of an alignment. So sometimes it's they're people of a certain level at a company or they're gay dads or they're um, lesbian moms or whatever it is. There's something that binds us together because we have that one commonality within each group. And then from there, we have this really supportive network that we create. And the goal of the circle is for people to, A, show up as inspired to be authentic, to feel safe, and to work on challenges that they're having. So, for example, with the business groups, and we have them for emerging talent, we have them for senior leaders, executives, CEOs, founders, et cetera. Those groups are really powerful places for people to work through issues. And we have the lens of the safety of being gay men so you can show up in all the different versions of yourself. If you need to be emotional, you're in a safe place for it. Mm. And so the coaching circles for the, for the LGBT population are really focused on the fact that we have something that, that binds us together, you know, from a work perspective. So it could be your level and it could be something else such as we're gay um, and we're part of the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, what, we found in the beginning was we weren't sure whether or not it was these are leaders who happen to be gay or these are gay leaders or LGBT leaders. And we had a bunch of dinners where we invited folks to us and we said, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. Tell us what you think about it. And somebody had such an aggressive reaction to the happen to be gay piece that it really opened up our eyes to the fact that my journey was very much informed by the fact that I grew up a little gay boy in Brooklyn who moved into the big city in Manhattan and then kind of traveled all the way to Los Angeles. So other people must have had that experience too. So now we're really fully focused on recruiting and finding people who have some sort of um, challenge that they want to work on that we do through these groups. There's six months. We meet every month for six months. We're virtual. So we meet about four hours a month. It's broken up and there's such powerful groups that people keep in touch after the groups uh, we're working through real challenges that help people to become better leaders, better individuals, better, more balanced in their life, whether it's professional or personal. Yeah. And it's incredibly validating to be able to do this for the LGBTQ plus community. So much so that I've started in the, the organization. I'm a partner at a company called Evolution. We're forming this as a more discreet union of the LGBT coaches so that we can really spread this. And because it's virtual now, we can do it anywhere. So we Amazing. were doing these in person before. Now we're doing them anywhere. And even, you know, folks in Canada are invited to um, come and check it out. Cool. Yeah, right on. We'll attach a, a link to that in the show notes for sure. Thank um, you. Yeah. And for people that are wanting to, to check out uh, John, you can uh, check his website out at volturocoaching.com. Um, yeah, some really cool stuff on there as well. So I love, I love your story. 
Um, before we wrap up, I, I, I like to do this with people. Um, this is me tip of the week. So I leave, I leave my, my listeners with something um, that can help people step into the truth of who they are, their authenticity, but do it in a form of self-ownership, right? Like this is me, this is who I am. Um, what's one thing, one tip you can share that's helped you empower yourself into your authenticity and self-ownership? Take all the time you need. I can edit it out. If okay. You. <laughs> okay. Um, I think the question that I ask myself is something similar to what we talked about earlier, which is what if you took the chance, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm. And what if you took the next chance? And what if you took the next chance? And what if you took the next one? What if you need to do all of that to get to where you really want? Yeah. Yeah, I and I like that. Go, sorry, go ahead. No, I feel like that resonates with me because I I do think that um, success is a bunch of chances we take, and success I mean in anything that you do and whatever your definition of it is, not society's your definition. So, but it can't happen unless we take that chance. So, if we ask ourselves the question, "What if?" I think it actually makes it feel like the downside could be actually smaller. You know, so what I'm embarrassed for a minute or so what I failed, I probably learned something from it or so what somebody got mad at me, they'll get over it. Like all of the things that we put up as obstacles inside our head could be broken down if we just consistently said, asked ourselves those questions. Yeah, I like that. And that's kind of what I'm doing too with my what if game is really just breaking that down and using my imagination for possibility, not limitation. So um, yeah, I like that. What if you took the chance? What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, although I just met you, I do want to reflect this back to you because I am very energetically sensitive and I feel that you've, you've done this like circle, this full circle. Like I feel like you're just so, you're so embodied. Um, it just, it, it just, and I do feel safe talking to you. I feel like this was a really, uh, nice conversation. It had a lot of fluidity. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you took the time out today to, to come on the podcast and share your insights with us. And, and most importantly, share your energy because you're, you do radiate a, a, a very confident and, um, authentic energy. So thank you for that. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. I, I feel the same. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, thank you. Cool. And uh, for people that want to check out John's work, like I said, you can check him out at VolturoCoaching.com. All the um, links will be in the show notes. And um, yeah, subscribe on YouTube and subscribe on iTunes or whatever, wherever you uh, check out your podcasts. And uh, looking forward to seeing you guys again.